With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening to all of you here on Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. We hope that you are well. And we hope you're getting in your seats. We're going to have a full house tonight. And uh, we've got a full program for you, one which we think will carry you for many, many months to come. As many of you know, we're coming into this broadcast this week uh, with two more black men who have unnecessarily met their deaths, with the Supreme Court dropping the second shoe against liberty and democracy in our country, 
with a $28 million rehabilitation of the Memphis-based African-American History Museum, which opened on today, and with smoke signals from the right-wing evangelical nut jobs with a new enemy, and his name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. We want to remind you, as we always do with one of our drops of Be Carefuls, that while we are raising our black fists in righteous indignation of the war against poor people in this country, that we should pause and be clear about who poor people really are. I know that many of you who struggle to pay the bills every day, who struggle to pay the rent, to make the mortgage payment, and to do many things for your children that you need to do, that you want to do because you want them to love you, believe as you come and go from your jobs that you are poor. Perhaps in your personal economy you are. But we remind you here at Our Common Ground to give pause, to think about who truly the poor people in this country are. They are not people who have cell phones to call us at our common ground. They are not people who have Internet connection to listen to this broadcast or to spend time on Facebook or Twitter. They are people who are holding fast with the edges of their nails. That gives us pause, but it also gives us purpose. Thank you once again. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so by coming to www.blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG, www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And those of you who are having whatever Internet connections that you might have and you'd like to call us on your smart device, our number is 347-838-9852, and we'll make room for you to listen on your smart device. And we're going to get going with our program. Thank you once again for being with us tonight. We are here each Saturday, 10 p.m. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are going to honor and learn from the life of a witness from the bridge. She is Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. She came to change a nation in her youth and to lift up her people. And there is much that we can learn from her life, her life achievement, and her life purpose. And she'll be joining us. But first, before we begin, our witness from the bridge episode which is the third one. We have had uh, two other witnesses from the bridge, our sister and elder, Florence Tate, and our scholar leader, uh, Dr. Ruby uh, Sales. And we also want to do a shout-out to Dr. Reverend Dr. Susan K. Smith, and Reverend Dr. Ruby Sales, who are our Common Ground Voices, for their induction into the Martin Luther King Preachers Hall of Fame in Atlanta, Georgia, this week. But this week also marked the 45th anniversary of the assassination 
of Martin Luther King. And while we stand firmly on our common ground, we could not go by without pausing to remember that leader. Once upon this planet Earth lived a man humble preaching love and freedom for his fellow man. He was dreaming of the day peace would come to earth to stay. And he spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek, he'd bleed. Love thy neighbor was his creed. Pain, humiliation, death, he did not dread. With his Bible. From his foes he did not hide It's hard to think That this great man Is dead Oh yeah A long life, longevity Has its place But I'm not concerned about that now and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. Less than 24 hours after he spoke those words, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. And as I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. As somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. 
There's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. undermined the very rights and privileges that it should have been protected. Great progress. 
And while we must, I think, make peace with the past, we must never forget it, and we must never dismiss it. Why can't they hear us more clearly? What are we so busy doing that we can afford to abandon them and then have the arrogance and the nerve to accuse them for being lost? I don't know how I around another day. I am here still running, I believe. We came from a family, not civil rights activists, but had for generations you know, passed on this, uh, the idea that you're as good as anybody and it really goes back five generations to the, the uh, grandfather five, four generations removed who, who um, taught his children who were mixed race and he was white and their mother was Creek Indian that no one is better than you and he also said that he would not have his blood spilled across the country and that they would, he would not enslave his own children, they would not be sold and bought and so on. That was, that, the concept of you're as good as anybody and always look white people straight in the eye and don't blink when you're talking to them. Demand respect that way from them. Do not allow them to walk over you. Uh, was what was taught to us over and over again. And it was, um, I didn't think anything about it at the time, but and trying to figure out what were those influences that led us to activism. I think it, it had to do with us growing up feeling that we had a right uh, to demand equal treatment at the time and the place and to the parents that movement, young movement people were born to. It was through an accident of history that we were, that post-war generation in the South, at the time, who had the parents who taught us stand up for yourself, that all of that thing, I mean, you're talking about synchronicity and uh, serendipity, all those things fell into place for a small group of young people. And that was our generation. A king standing up in Montgomery and people saying, well, you're right. It was, for us, it was it was almost like you had to do it. It was a matter of time. The time had come. And they expected so much of us. They have felt they couldn't do anything about it. They, there was this spirit of rising expectations that, that we would do it. We were like you young people are today. No different. The only difference is that we found a calling. As the Algerian psychiatrist, Frank Fanon said, each generation must find its mission, fulfill it or betray it. We were ordinary young people doing extraordinary things. We didn't know we would change the course of history, but we sure knew that we would do everything possible to try. We didn't think in broad terms about one day the society is going to be so different and so on. We were fighting one battle at a time. Community service is the rent you pay for being on earth. That you had to have a strong belief in something. We learned in our homes and schools and churches that 
The leaves aren't worth very much as you're not willing to stand up for them. So having, having the courage of our convictions was the most important thing that defined us. We may have gotten away from it today, but we must find ways to get back to it. In the summer of 1963, the busiest year of the civil rights movement, Americans from North and South made plans to hold the greatest demonstration for freedom in American history. A. Philip Randolph, whose plan for a march in 1941 forced President Roosevelt to desegregate wartime industries, was the march's visionary. He and Bayard Rustin rallied civil rights organizations, unions, and all faiths to mass on the National Mall for civil rights and economic opportunity. And then they arrived by bus, traveling from as far away as San Francisco, and they arrived by train. They sang and talked and planned along the way. At the end of a long day, Martin Luther King changed history. Things were so different. It was so simple back then. Not like today with all the social media and a thousand television networks. The people's access to news was much more limited. Uh, and so word of mouth and one-on-one and -on -one, uh, real live people going out meant a great deal. In the office, we all functioned as one staff under bias. There was a daily staff meeting at the end of the day, and sometimes the end of the day could come at midnight uh, when we put in long hours. Um, and um, the closer it got to the date of the march, things got more and more hectic. Um, sometimes people would come in off the street, uh, and Harlow would come into the office and say, I understand this is where you people are organizing to take people down to the march. Uh, I'd like to go. And, you know, it was, it was a very touching in many ways. It was these values of kinship and family, responsibility, and religion that served as the foundation of the movement. And for those leaders like Martin Luther King, Fannie Lou Hamer, Rosa Parker, Ella Baker, Dorothy Cotton, Andy Young, and many others. In all his eloquence, Dr. King voiced his strong sentiments in a speech he gave at Abbott House in 1965 when he said, I quote, for no other group in American life is the matter of family more important than to the Negro. Our very survival is bound up in it. No one in all history had to fight against so many physical and psychological horrors to have a family life, as did we. Our families held on to each other at all costs, and our communities fought to remain intact when all else was against them. It is that same struggle for family that we see in the movie Twelve Years of Slaves, when Simon Northrup longs to be reunited with his wife and children after he's been sold into slavery as a free man. And it is the same struggle that we see each day in our neighbors and friends who are trying to hold it all together and make a way out of no way despite the difficulties they face. Pioneer of the Civil Rights Movement. Beginning in her youth, she came to change a nation and to lift up her people. Sociologist, academician, scholar, and activist. A witness from the bridge. Tonight at our common ground. A witness 
from the bridge, Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you for being with us tonight. Stay tuned. She was born in Battles, Mississippi, on March 18th. 12th, 1943, but grew up in Hattiesburg. In high school, she became involved in the civil rights movement. She and her sister, Dory, were expelled from Jackson State College in Jackson, Mississippi, for participating in the civil rights protests. She and her sister, Dory, transferred to Tugaluga College in Tugaluga, Mississippi, where she earned her B.A. degree in sociology in 1964 and went on to Washington University and St. Louis, Missouri to earn a Ph.D. in 1968. She was mentored by three civil rights martyrs, Vernon Darman, Clyde Kennard, and Medgar Evers. She became active in the, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1961 and worked in Mississippi, southwest Georgia, and she was SNCC's representative on the national staff of the March on Washington in 1963. She was arrested for attempting to worship at the all-white Galloway Methodist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. After earning her Ph.D., Ladner went on to teach at the university level. She did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Dar es Salaam in 1971. She published her first book in 1971, Tomorrow's Tomorrow, The Black Woman, A Study of Poor Black Adolescent Girls from St. Louis. That same year, Joyce Ladner began teaching at Howard University. In 1973, she joined the faculty of Hunter College at the City University of New York. She lived in Dakar, Senegal in 1980-81, where her husband, Walter Carrington, was United States Ambassador. Joyce Ladner returned to teach at Howard University in 1981, and she served as president for academic affairs from 1990 to 1994 and as interim president of Howard University from 1994 to 1995, the first woman in America to do so. In 1995, President Bill Clinton appointed her to the District of Columbia Financial Control Board, where she oversaw the finances and budgetary restructuring of the public school system. She was also a senior fellow in the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution of Washington, D.C. think tank and research organization from 1998 to 2003. She has authored and edited seven books, She has appeared on nationally syndicated radio and television programs and is writing her memoirs titled Stand Up Straight on Coming of Age During the Civil Rights Movement. And we are so pleased to introduce to you and to enter into a discussion of the life and achievements and lessons of Joyce Ladner. Dr. Joyce Ladner, thank you so very much for joining us. We are so pleased and privileged to have you. I'm pleased to be here. Well, thank you so very much uh, for joining us, and you are indeed a witness 
from the bridge. Uh, well, I, as, I didn't know you were talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, indeed. Um, you know, you you have been um, an icon, uh, an image in my life for a very, very long time. Um, oh, I'm, I'm nice to hear. Very early years. Um, I remember um, on the bus uh, traveling back to Florida, uh, from the March on Washington in 1963, and the adults talking about the young women, and you were you and your older sister Dory were one of those people that they were talking about, and I was sitting and reflecting on that's what I want to do, and I was only 13 years old at the time. Wow. So, wow. so thank you so very much for your your passion, your contribution. Uh, the way in which you have modeled for what it means to be a movement woman, a movement leader. And I so very much uh, am enamored and impressed and, 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 and thankful uh, for you and for a grateful black people and nation uh, for what you have, how you have used your life. Go ahead. You were interested in? Well, as you know, from my early years, I, I was always interested in two things, understanding what's going on and also trying to change conditions that I felt were not fair. Um, so it was I combined, you know, I am what I called a scholar activist, you know, or, or I was a student activist. I was always sort of in school getting my education because uh, as a first-generation college in my immediate family, you know, I just felt that I had to um, you know, get a college degree. But at the same time, time uh, it was a matter of, um, what shall I say, um, uh, of having to change the conditions around us. I just couldn't remain as they were. And we were also... Um, challenged by our elders to uh, bring about changes as well, because I remember my great uncle who had been in, in World War One in, in France um, uh, challenged us, kids, by telling us that, um, well, actually what happened, we used to sit with him on the back porch uh, of his house and listen, to, and listen with him to Jackie Robinson uh, playing baseball. And every time Jackie Robinson came to bat, Uncle Archie was had this kind of infectious um, um, laughter, and, and he was so excited. And he, but he always ended by saying, "Now you girls have to be the Jackie Robinsons of your generation." Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite, I didn't always know what he meant, you know, by it for sure. But I, I knew it involved something important. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's I, very important for us to be able to to point to the. The, the 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 lights in our lives, the people who turn on the light. Right. Um, it was very, very important because he had made so many sacrifices himself. He used to tell us stories about how the French people uh, would ask him um, you know, to see his monkey tail and how, how painful that was to him. He was abroad fighting for freedom, you know, but mm-hmm. he... But he was not, and then he returned home like all those uh, veterans of World War II 
who had fought for democracy abroad and who came back home um, with um, conditions being the same as they were when they left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so his challenge to us was was very, very important, you know. mm -hmm. Tell us, uh, Dr. Ladner, about your early education. Who were your teachers? What was the segregated school system like in Mississippi uh, prior to your going off uh, to get an expel from Jackson State. I love that story. Well, I was glad to be put, that they put me out of there because I hated that school. <laughs> I couldn't stand And they definitely put you out. Yeah, they did. But what was your early education? Who were the teachers? Who were the principals? And I always think that the, 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 when I was three and a half years old, my mother um, – I, my older sister Dory, who's just a year older than I, um, was had gone on to school, and Mother took me by the hand one day, and we went down to uh, the home of the principal. He lived in our neighborhood, and and she told him that she asked him if she could bring me to school, um, if I could come to school with with Dory, with my sister, uh, to play because I was lonely at home by myself. And I remember he, I was tiny, I was very little, um, and he. He said, if you give this little girl a cigar and have her bring it to me tomorrow at my office, I'll see what I can do. And I remember that. That was one of my earliest recollections. So Mother took me uh, to his office and with that cigar, and, and I actually started real school, as we called it. Um, mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. playing. And mm-hmm. but then um, my first teacher was a, a wonderful woman whose name was Zola Jackson, she um, taught me to read. I still have you know, just a enormous um, gratitude for Miss Jackson for what she 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 taught me. She um, um, I remember one time I w- kept walking to her desk and she said, "Little girl, if you don't stop walking back and forth to my desk asking me, Miss Jackson, Miss Jackson, is this right? You're going to get holes in the sole of your shoes." And I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I was trying to figure out. The holes in the souls. <laughs> I didn't even have the vocabulary for it. But Miss Jackson was one of those uh, just uh, people who, like all of our teachers, took tremendous pride in our 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 ability to learn. And uh-huh. and so so she um, um, actually she was the the grandmother of um, what's his name? I forgot his name now. But of uh, one of our professional basketball players. Um, but she felt that every child could learn. All of our teachers felt that every child could learn. And there was no such thing as, as um, let's say, um, uneducable or, you know, these mm-hmm. fancy vocabulary that's used today. They took pride in, in, in using, and, 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 you know, using their very, very minimal resources uh, to reach every child. And uh-huh. so that's what it was like. Uh, all of us... Um, we didn't really know we were poor until we were told later on that we were, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> after a fashion, uh-huh. um, because we achieved uh, tremendously. And they, our teachers had very little. I remember they they used to go to summer school at places like Indiana University to get their master's degrees, or um, and they went every summer, you know, uh, to continue okay. their education. They were just, just extraordinary people, very industrious people, too. They were... Were part of our communities. They lived in, you know, in the neighborhood, 
And so mm-hmm. their their interest in us was um, because they um, because you know, we could have been their children. They right. came to our house if if something was wrong. You know, they 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 kept in touch. Um, I used to always go back to to visit my teachers when I was um, after I got out of out of college, out of high school and, and later out of college and so on. Um, the reason the reason I ask you. Uh, this particular question is because I think that there are many black people who do not understand the culture of the black South. Right. That during segregation, we had there was a flexibility even in the schools to bend the arc of 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 the universe toward justice for black people in our own way. Absolutely, and we we um. We had everything we needed, uh, as it were. In a way, we didn't. We had uh, our churches. Uh, our, our lives revolved around our own churches, our own schools. Um, they may have, may not have had all the 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 um, uh, what should I say the equipment that that we needed, but but we were complete in a way. Um, we were not um, um, culturally deprived. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It was an enriching environment. A very both enriching in, environment. Yes, both in Absolutely. in terms of what you saw. I mean, I attended segregated schools until I was in the ninth grade, mm-hmm. um, and I know that you attended segregated public schools all of your. Um, right. so all of your, all, yes. Mm-hmm. So people need to really have a great understanding of the richness and the empowerment that right. that system offered. Because a lot of people, uh, Joyce, ask me about the, the question of what is the difference between our generation and the generation after our generation. And I believe that there, are, there is a great attribution to what happened to black children in, in segregated schools in the South, which is why you can point to huge accomplishments mm-hmm. from kids who came, black kids who came out of the segregated system. Exactly. Um, we, we had people who cared about us and mm-hmm. made the ultimate investment and sacrifice on our behalf. Um, and I think it had a lot to do with accountability. They made themselves accountable. No one had to tell them that that they these teachers that they had to be um, 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 accountable for the teach the students learning or the students mm-hmm. uh, learning to read and to write and do very basic basic things. Uh, mm-hmm. They automatically assumed it was their responsibility and they took great pride in doing so. Mm-hmm. And never, they had a definition of excellence of excellence that we that, don't have today. Absolutely. Exactly. Now. Right. Uh, when you when you left home, you were in Hattiesburg when you graduated from high school. Yes. And I have not seen in looking at your bios and your background whether or not you uh, how you fared in 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 high school. But I assume you were, if not the valedictorian, the salutatorian of your class. Yeah, I was valedictorian, and my sister Dora was the salutatorian. Whoa! Um, I you know I just guessed that. I, I just guess yeah. looking at how your 
how your life that you were scholastically um, uh, superior, uh, yeah. even in high school. So you went yeah. on, both of you went on to Jackson uh, State College, and that didn't work out too well no, because you had a sense <laughs> of community. I had a sense of community, and, and I got expelled because for, for helping to organize the first civil rights demonstration uh, on that campus. Um, and uh, what happened is that we, had, in high school, we had gotten to know Medgar Evers uh, because he was, let me back up just a little. When, in, in, when we were quite young, um, our mother's best friend um, took us with her to, and her brother, uh, Vernon Dama, who was one of the civil rights um, martyrs who was murdered. Uh, they used to take us with them to Jackson to the statewide NAACP meetings. And um, that's when I first met Medgar Evers. I was maybe 13 years old, I guess. Um, and so, so what happened is once I got to college, uh, I used to, my sister Dora and I would go to Medgar's office. It was illegal uh, against the rules to go there, the college rules to go there, because he was in quotes an agitator, <laughs> agitator uh-huh. with change. And one time we went by his office. He, he told us that there was going to be a civil rights a sit-in at uh, at the public library, and and of course we kept it quiet. I mean it was. Uh, but we wanted. To, we asked him if we could be a part of it, and he said. At first, he said, "Yes, uh, that would be good." And then later, he said, "You know, I wouldn't know what to tell your mother if you got arrested, and you will be arrested. So what you should do instead is to organize a sympathy protest on campus after the students at Tougaloo College nearby. You know, it's about eight miles away, are arrested." And so I remember staying in my dorm all that. Um, that day, uh, on the day that the, the uh, uh, demonstration was to take place, and then finally when I heard it on the radio, um, I was so happy. And a group of us got together and, and, and said we were going to have a, this uh, sympathy prayer meeting that evening on the way to the library. Um, and all the students would stop, see the group of folks out there, and they'd stop. And you had to do everything surreptitiously. You couldn't say, well, we're going to organize this because, you know, and the cops would have been called and everything else. We would have been put in prison and parchment penitentiary for doing this. So um, that evening, we were in the, the one of the students was in the middle of praying when we heard this voice screaming, "You better stop it! You better stop it!" And it turned around and it was the president of the college, Jacob Reddick, and he was livid. He was so upset. He'd never had you know lost control. Um, these guys were, uh, presidents of these colleges were hired to maintain control. That was all, that was their job. And so uh, it was like a glorified plantation in a way, and he was the, the boss, uh, the, the overseer. And so right after, he came, he was just running from one group of students to the other, said, stop this, stop this. He, he was absolutely out of control. It was crazy. So, um, at one point, he stopped near my room, two roommates and, and myself, and, and he pushed my roommate, whose name was Eunice, and knocked her down to the ground. Oh, what did he do that for? We forgot that we were demonstrating against, uh, you know, for the two blue students, we turned on him, of course. And then they brought a 
the police dogs on the campus and and the next day we boycotted classes and so on and and uh by the by noon, you know, we decided we were going to march to the courthouse where the Tougaloo College who had sat in at the public library were being arraigned. We'd gotten a few blocks from campus and when the um um the uh, police dogs were brought out and I remember hearing this this pop pop sound. I thought it was I screamed. I remember screaming, oh, they're trying to kill us, you know. But it was actually tear gas, and that's how tear gas sounds. It sounds like a gun going off. Um, uh, So we were chased by the police dogs. There's nothing worse than being chased by a dog. It was some subliminal, uh, fearful thing out of slavery where the hounds are chasing you. So we uh, were, you know, pushed back to... We hid in. I hid in the, in the home of a, a black woman, and other students were hiding. And 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 people opened up their houses to to um, keep us safe. Um, and I remember getting back to campus late, um, a couple of hours later. And then the next day, the police. Um, I mean, the the president of the college closed the campus uh, early for spring break. When we got back, the dean of students t- told us, oh, by the way, with my my, my roommate Eunice, the dean co- of students came over to our dorm that night and told her that she, the president had expelled her. And we were asking him, expelled for what? She didn't do anything. He knocked her down. and But yet she had to leave. And when her parents, she had to be off campus, believe it or not, before daybreak. So... Um, what do you tell a a, a a 17-year-old girl, you know, who has done nothing wrong and who is um, being expelled because she was knocked to the ground by the president of the college? Uh, we students were saying you shouldn't go, and the next day, that that night, say about three o'clock in the morning, her parents had arrived from down on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi to pick her up, and they tried to see the president of the college the next day, being the um, person he was he refused to see them and i don't i never i lost contact with Eunice, and i've often wondered whatever happened to her one these days i'm going to try to find her um but it was it was awful and we were kids i mean i was seven i turned 17 by then you know and we were all young i mean it was it was Mm -hmm. horrible but but um we prevailed but when we got back you know from spring break to that was when the dean of students called my sister and me in and told us that we were being expelled and we were not to be outdone. We told him, "Fine, <laughs> we hate this school anyway. <laughs> we're going to transfer to Tougaloo College, which was cost twice as much as Jackson State." We hadn't talked to our parents or anybody about uh, transferring, but it all worked out. And I, by the time I got to Tougaloo, which has you know just tremendous reputation for being the civil rights college, you know, we were, it was wonderful. I felt like I had finally exhaled for the first time in my life. You know, yeah, to be able yeah, to breathe, yeah. Freely, freely, you know. And, and it, all, these, all these experiences really prepared you for what was to come as you became part of the leadership, student leadership of SNCC. I guess so, you know, but at the time, 
you're young and you're just so busy living life that you don't know, uh-huh. you don't think about any of this. It was we were just doing what we felt we were supposed to be doing. You know, it, it was not it was nothing conscious about it. We at the same time we were doing uh, having demonstrations, organizing demonstrations, doing voter registration work. Um, uh, we were also you know studying. We were also uh, having our parties and doing other things like young people do. But uh-huh. but uh-huh. we had this passion for changing things, and I think um, some of some of my friends, you know, fathers that had been um, in the uh, NAACP um, before. See, a lot of the a lot of the early leadership of of the movement came from people uh, like um, Amzie Moore in in the Delta of Mississippi, who had been in the military. And they came back, and they were determined, you know, to change things. And they were, they were our role models, and not enough credit is given to these these people. Um, but had it not been for people like Amzamore, for Medgar Evers, and others, you know, things would not have changed. But they they told us that it was going to change, and we were going to be part of that change. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm grateful for it. But we mm-hmm. we were. It was not an accident. Of, I mean, it was an accident of history in a way that we. Accident in the sense that we were born when we were born to, at a time of of great challenge of this post-war uh, children, um, first-generation college, and the, if there's one some the symbolic personification of all of this, it was the lynching of Emmett Till, who was our age, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you, everybody in SNCC that I know saw the cover of Emmett Till's body on the cover of. Um, Jet magazine Jet when magazine. he was mm-hmm. yes, and mm-hmm. we all vowed, you know, that we're going to change this. This is just not going to be allowed to exist. You yeah, know? yeah. I, 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 it was a pivotal moment uh, in my life in a very grave way. Uh, until how was that? Uh, until uh, I saw and read that story in Jet magazine, which we always received every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that children died. Well, none of us did because even in the the worst situa- cases, um, you know, p- men were lynched, children were spared. You know, mm-hmm. we, we didn't, I didn't think we were um, invulnerable by any means, but I sure yeah. didn't know that, that white people were uh, there were white people who were mean and evil enough to kill children, mm-hmm. and that was. Mm-hmm. I remember asking uh, Emmett Till's mother when I met her um, back in the 80s, why did she allow? Why did she uh, allow? Insist rather on having his body um, unembalmed, uh, shown. Uh, she didn't. She didn't allow them to do any cosmetic surgery to make him look presentable. Or anything. She said, "I wanted the world to see what they did to my baby." What they and did to my son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that did a that yeah. took a lot, a lot of courage. Here's someone, a mother who's, you know, just distraught um, over what had happened to her child, and yet she had the presence of mind to say that people ought to see this. They ought to know wh- what happened to him. They should know what went wrong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I admired her tremendously because I don't, I don't think I could have done that. I mean, let me ask you about your work with SNCC and in in the um, many years of recruiting and organizing, were you aware that the whole world was watching what you were doing? No, no not at all. Some people. 
And not until, say, about 1964 when things really um, got, when the, mo- the movement began to nas- get um, nationalized in a way in in 19, the 1963 or so, around the time of the March on Washington. Prior to then, it really was a Southern movement, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I knew I knew that we had friends um, of SNCC, that we had people who sent us contributions. In fact, I used to um, answer Bob Moses' mail. He was too busy doing other things. He asked me if I would uh, write thank you letters to the people who were sending, you know, checks. I remember one couple from Westchester County in New York sent $500, and that was a lot of money back then, a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wrote them and thanked them. And we had, you know, campus chapters, friends of SNCC on campuses around the country. But uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't really know that that um, the entire world was watching until later we, because we were so busy trying to try. Well, we, yeah, and we were busy trying to get people to, Note, take note of what was going on. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It was hard to get publicity. For example, yeah. if, if there was a demonstration, I'll never forget being in Greenwood, Mississippi, in um, spring break 1963, and you know, it was very violent, uh, I remember, uh, and, and we were trying to get publicity. We were, the people who covered us were Dan Rather, CBS. No, mm-hmm. Um, we were covered by uh, Claude Sitton of Newsweek, but you could count them on one hand. Every, you know, everybody was not out there trying to cover the civil rights movement. Um, and our job was to, to try to get people to to uh, publicize what was going on because a lot of a lot of it wasn't publicized. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, I remember that um, I worked with my father and my mother who were recruiting people to go to the March on Washington. So it was a matter of there was no email, there was no none of that. It was a matter of you get in the car and you go into neighborhoods and you knock on doors. And um, we went went into one home and um, the the man that was there was um, just a man in the neighborhood and and he said to my father, it's not going to be Kennedy, it's not going to be Eisenhower, it's going to be the people of Mississippi, the Negroes, of the colored people of Mississippi and Georgia that's going to stop this nonsense. I will oh, never forget that. Wow, you um, have tremendous memory too, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I this is I, I was, I was, I was, I was. I, I think when they started the recruitment, I wasn't even thirteen yet. Wow. Uh, so, um, it, 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 these stories really stay with you because they are so pivotal in your life, and you are trying to, as a young person, to transpose them into what it means for you on that day. Right, but exactly. My, my, my mother kept saying to me, "Tomorrow is a word that you spell mis you misspell all the time. Today you need to remember how to spell it correctly because this is what it's about." That's amazing. Uh, it it really is amazing. I want to talk to you about the work that you did as a representative of SNCC 
on the organizing committee of the March of 63. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to get into that phase of your life and then to talk about your work as a sociologist, as a scholar, as an educator, so that our audience gets an idea of how your life lessons have been fed into the future. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we are talking with our witness from the bridge, Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. You stay tuned. We'll be right back. To clutch for power, not needing the light just to shine on me. I need to be one. We put in long hours. Um, And um, the closer it got to the date of the march, things got more and more hectic. Um, sometimes people would come in off the street uh, and Harlow come into the office and say, I understand this work. These people are organizing to take people down to the march. Uh, I'd like to go. And Struggling myself don't mean a whole lot. I've come to realize. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're 7th in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, 3rd in median household income, number 4 in labor force, and number 4 in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending. When you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. What we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this economy. And these people are sabotaging this country. Alpha on TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, Alpha. The Alpha Show. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. 
And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Truthworks Network. Truthworks. Truthworks Network. Live from the Truthworks Network studio at Blog Talk Radio, an Our Common Ground Media production. The Black Voice Collaborative. The Alpha Show Alpha, serving his politics with hot grips. Soul Emergence. With Peter E. Matthews, Reconciling for Revolution. Special broadcast series, Working While Black, Black Women in the Prison, and Power Views. The truth must be spoken more than once. Only on TruthWorks Network. You can find TruthWorks Network on Facebook. Like us and learn more about us. People like Jay-Z would say that his presence alone is a contribution when in his back and forth with Harry Belafonte. Yeah. You know, it bothers me terribly that a little Wayne would use Emmett Till's death in a song in the most derogatory way possible. Mm. Uh, it bothers me that that Young people don't get it. I don't blame them entirely, but I don't let them off the hook either. Because you have each generation, as Franz Fanon once said, to paraphrase him, each generation must define its mission and fulfill it or betray it. I think there are a lot of young people out here who are doing wonderful things, great yeah. things. And you don't have, to, you don't have the conditions we lived under of life and death. So I don't expect the same thing from them. In fact, I think they have to decide how they're going to fight the struggle. But... We we decided, I call ours the Emmett Till generation, because, you know, to a person, everybody I know in SNCC saw the picture of Emmett Till's grotesque body after he'd been bloated on the cover of Jet magazine, and we vowed then that we one day... I won't give anything away until we have it all. Thank you for being with us here tonight on Our Common Ground as we honor a witness from the bridge and discuss her life accomplishments, her life purpose, and her life's aspiration and passion for her people. Dr. Joyce A. Ladner, thank you so very much again for joining us. If you'd like to join us in this conversation and you have a question for Dr. Ladner, our number is 347-838-9852. Dr. Ladner, before we went to break, we were coming up to your leadership in the organizing of the March on Washington. Let me ask you, did you ever expect the hundreds of thousands of people who would arrive? No, we we didn't. Um we thought that, that we hoped, I should say, that 
the people would come, but we had no idea as to how many would show. This was before, this was during the days of using the old mimeograph machine, um, machine where you, um, and where, of telephones. There were no faxes. Uh, there was no um, email or, and so on. So we uh, did everything by mail. One of the staff members wrote brochure on how to organize. Um, and a lot of the work was done at the ground level. I mean, we did more coordinating than organizing in some in one way sense, and organizing, of course, a lot in, in another. There was, the march would not have come off like it did had there not been the people like your, your parents who were out there organ- trying to get people to go to Washington. Um, but I remember early on the morning of the march, Byrett had gotten out, Rustin had gotten out to the mall at about, um, I guess, at five, five o'clock in the morning. He and Cortland Cox were out there, and he was, Byrett was wondering, well, are they, I wonder if they're going to come. Um, and I got there about 7.30 or so because a group of us in SNCC went to pick at the Justice Department because we had three of our SNCC members uh, organizers who were in jail in southwest Georgia for sedition, for overthrowing the state because they were organizing uh, people to go to register to vote. And we hadn't been able to get any publicity around that, so we felt that since we were in D.C. we could pe- picket. After the picketing, my sister and I walked over to the mall, and people still hadn't come. And slowly began to see you know, people coming um, and ones and twos, a lot of them were local people from D.C., and then groups, and then they started coming and coming and coming. It was incredible to see all those people. And the most extraordinary, if there's, I mean, I have a number of members from that day, but but one memory was standing on the podium on the Lincoln Memorial, because I had a stage pass so I could go up on the podium, and look, I had the experience of looking out, of all those people, no one on that stage had ever seen that many people before. I, there was no one in America who probably seen that many people before. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we didn't have huge gatherings like that back then, and so that was just truly, truly remarkable. And uh, but but when the people did turn out, it was it was just so gratifying to know that they came and to see people marching on the banners from whether it was Westchester County or. Um, uh, Wilkes-Barre or uh, uh, your town in Florida or, you know, the NAACP from from uh, New Haven or from from Jackson, Mississippi or from Alabama or the Albany, Georgia contingent, you know, the core from New Orleans, all those different groups converging there. And that's when I had this just most wonderful, warm and fuzzy feeling Um uh, an indescribable feeling that these people, these are all people who believe in what we believe in. They support us. That was the first time I really saw the broad base of the support. Because it was very isolating down in the South. Mm-hmm. Very, very isolating and isolated. Um, it was dangerous. It was, um, there were, weren't very many people. You hear a lot of people say, I marched with Dr. King. They may have, you know, but but the core, hardcore group of people who were in it, you know, um, no matter what, was small. 
There weren't hundreds of thousands. There weren't thousands of people, really. You saw thousands at a big march, but the day-to-day hard grinding work involved handfuls of people. And so that was, it was so great to get out of the Deep South and to come north and to see who the, how broad the support base mm-hmm. was or could potentially become. Mm-hmm. I know that our bus left West Palm Beach uh, from a bus that started in Miami. Oh, and it so they stopped right up. up the East Coast, picking people up. All there were like four or five Jacksonville. Uh, the people from Orlando and Tampa were someplace. Um, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I was so little. I was wasn't paying very much attention. Um, but one of the big discussions, as the bus got to West Palm Beach, was my father and my uncle were very adamant that the banner on the side of the bus that was attached to the bus had to be taken down once we went into central Florida. I remember my my Uncle Dyson saying, unless you don't want this bus to be a target and people Mm -hmm. get hurt, this banner got to come down. You'd probably take it down um, today in Central Florida, too, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So um, it, it, it was interesting, but let me ask you to reflect on as you stood on the Lincoln Memorial and you looked down on that particular crowd and what was happening there and understanding the import of what was happening. Did you reflect as you sat at the first inauguration of Barack Obama on that moment? Uh, Yes, because what I thought about was that when I had the other large demonstration I'd been at on the mall, and I'd I'd gone to anti-war, poor people's campaign, you know, all of the big marches of the 60s, I was there. But Mm -hmm. I, I, I thought about how far we'd come, I thought about Atlantic City and when the Freedom Democratic Party of Mississippi had gone to Atlantic City in, one year later, 1964, Four, uh-huh. and, and had been uh, essentially denied any democracy there because we were there to challenge the all-white segregated Mississippi uh, delegation at the Democratic National Convention. And I thought about how we had been sort of kicked out of Atlantic City in a way, in a nice way, and yet here was a man, you know, 40, more than 40 years later, who now was uh, the president of the United States. And uh-huh. I think he has acknowledged, acknowledged many times that had it, had it not been for that early struggle in the South, he would not have been president, nor would we have all these elected mm-hmm. officials, nor would a lot of other changes have, have occurred. I'm mm-hmm. not one who believes all the change is a result of what my small band of people did, but I think it was a coalescing of, of people, time, energy over time, you know, that that brought about these changes. I'll tell you one you thing, know, Janice. One thing yeah. that, that if I may say. So, um, during the March, fiftieth uh, anniversary of the March on Washington, I did a lot of speaking and so on uh, about the earlier march, and I had so many people say, "Thank you for what you did," but it sounded strange to me. Like, why are they thinking thanking me? 
and it's because I didn't think I was supposed to be thanked. I did what I was doing for myself and for my family and for my community and for everybody, but I wasn't doing it to get thanks. You know, it was a mission. We were on a call. We had a calling. We we were going to do it whether people supported us or not. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You and, know, and one days, of the things know, that. No, just one final thing. These days, people expect to be thanked for what they they do you know but for true service for us it it, it was no thanks to be expected i mean it was a matter of doing what had to be done Mm -hmm. yeah it it had become a part of who you are and your personal charge right and i think that that is so very much missing i think people want rewards they do it to garner rewards but one of the things that uh, occurs to me as, as you talk uh, about ev- all of the marches, all of the struggle and protests over the uh, issue of civil rights and human rights and, and the, the, the character of our democracy, um, is that... I, I do want to make a, a point here, and the point being that no matter how we feel about this president's policies and mm-hmm. the things that he has been cornered into doing or not doing, at the moment of his inauguration, I think I know that I stood there and I had been uh, at the March on Washington, I had been at the Million Man March, I had been at the Million Woman March, I had been in marches almost my entire uh, life uh, that I can remember, and sitting in NAACP meetings and, 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 and worrying about segregation versus integration, that at that moment, I think that our our our, our our hopes and our aspirations were affirmed. And that is one of the reasons where black people, no matter how or who wants to criticize the black support of uh, President Barack Obama, that it comes from the core of that. Right. That it is an affirmation of ourselves. Right. And I think that we have to be mindful of that, and we have to be careful that we don't dismiss it. And I, I just, I, I, Joyce, I don't know how you're feeling about it, but I'm, I'm getting so weary uh, at my age about this not necessarily uh, constructive criticism of the president as the president, but the dismissing of what, this has meant to so many people who have struggled for so long. I agree. I am of, of the gener- at seventy years old. I am of the generation that believes that you know, bus of the the this is the culmination of of a long you know half a century of recent American history, historical struggle, and then we go back you know, hundreds of years, you know, from the time yes, yes. first, but here. And to finally, you know, get a black president is the um, culmination of that. And we could mm-hmm. can, can criticize him on, on specific policies, but God knows 
no one ever in human history has ever had a harder time as he's had uh, being accepted as the legitimate leader of a, of a nation, especially one that says it's a democracy. I mean, absolutely. waking up every morning, hearing people say the most horrible things about you, people that normally you would be expected to sit down and have some cordial discourse, even if you disagree fundamentally with each other. But mm-hmm. people who, I mean, leaders, uh, elected leaders calling, referring to you as a monkey, and I mean, it's just unbelievable. And mm-hmm. here's a man who has had to had to bear all of that and keep a stiff upper lip and not address it at all. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that And not that acknowledging it, the limitations of every president. Exactly. George Bush, yeah, George Bush didn't have his own agenda. His agenda was given to him because he was the president of the United States, and that's how it worked. Well, but, Reagan, let, me, let, me, let me ask you about your uh, scholarship and your work as a sociologist. Um, <clears throat> and for those of you who are listening, Dr. Ladner is the author of the Death of White Sociology, Essays on Race and Culture. And um, she is um, um, the author of Launching Our Black Children for Success, A Guide for Parents to Kids from 3 to 18. Uh, she's written numerous books on education, urban issues, public policy, one of them being Tomorrow's Tomorrow, The Black Woman, The Ties That Bind, Timeless Values for African-American Families, Mixed Families, Adopting Across Racial Barriers, and the New Urban Leaders. Tell us about how you have done, um, how you entered into and have uh, formed and, and, and framed your scholarship as a sociologist. Well, I, I, even though I'm a scholar, I, I have always had this uh, very personal um, need to be as authentically myself as possible. I mean, I've gotten roundly criticized for injecting myself, putting myself on the pages of my scholar, some of my scholarly research and writing. But that's who I am. I think I would be a mediocre scholar if I didn't do it the way I do it. Um, but again, it it comes. All of my work has been guided pretty much by this basic premise of trying to use my training in, in sociology uh, and public policy to find solutions to, uh, if not solutions, certainly a greater understanding of the causes and consequences of of, of the issues that face us. Um, I started out very early on. Um, I finished my doctorate when I was in my mid-20s, actually 24 years old to be exact. And and I had done, I spent about four years doing research on adolescent girls, black girls in St. Louis, Missouri. I was at Washington University, St. Louis. And I, I remember early on, as I interviewed these kids, I did a lot of observations, spent hours and hours with them, with their families, um, hanging out with them, as kids say today, and really trying to get to know them. I was doing ethnographic research. And I was interested, as as it evolved, I realized what I was really interested in was the impact of race and class on their development, on gender development. And this was long before we began, even before I thought of it as gender, gender. I was, I was looking at it on 
on development of women, on young women. Um, we didn't have this, the theory on, on on feminism and womanism and all that back then. So, and this is 1964 when I began the study. But I wanted to, early on I began to say that, think of, of it in these terms. What if my parents had been part of that migration north from Mississippi? What if they had stopped and settled here in St. Louis or in Chicago or Milwaukee, Detroit, one of these um, western cities? Would I be one of these girls here today? They were all poor girls. Would I? I was third oldest of nine children. Would my parents have fared better? And I began to see myself subliminally in the beginning, I think, quite subliminally. But I began to identify with them because I could see, but for the grace of God, there goeth I. I could have been one of them. I mean, these kids who had, uh, a lot of them had gotten pregnant, uh, were struggling to try and get back in school without the resources. They had been dumped into, I mean, the public housing project, put I go that ultimately became the dumping ground for the poorest of the poor. And I think it was my empathy, my ability to be empathetic, um, that guided me to much deeper understanding of who they were, and I think it also engendered their trust. And that's how I started out. I, I was 20 years old when I went to grad school, so I wasn't much older than, I mean, I had, few girls who were 18 so <laughs> I was almost their age uh-huh. and and so over time I mean they they trusted me enough to to tell me their stories but I never had the feeling that they trusted me entirely because they couldn't I mean I was uh, very different you know at my own apartment I was getting I was at this this fancy university that they'd only heard of uh, and some of them had never heard of it even and um they, I'll give you an example of how they trusted me, but they didn't at the same time, or how they showed me that I, I really wasn't one of them entirely. Um, I, they always talked about going to this dance hall on Wednesday nights, and I kept asking if I could go with them. I wanted to see, you know, part of an ethnographer's work is to see your subject in as many natural surroundings as possible. Finally, they said I could go, and... I had an old 1960 Rambler car. I drove it down there and I parked it, and then they saw me. I, I said, you can't go dressed like this. I was dressed like a graduate student. you got to change these clothes. You'd be embarrassing us. So they had me put some – I dressed, they dressed me up. I don't remember exactly what I was wearing, but I, I didn't look the same for sure. The bogo boots. <laughs> Yeah, so, right, something like that. So we went outside their apartment. They were living in this 11-story, high-rise buildings. They were 11-story high. And they said, well, where's your car? And I had left my car <clears throat> parked far away because I wanted to experience it. Exactly. I wanted to know how they got there on uh, on Wednesday nights, who took them, etc. And they got upset because I didn't have my car. And so we went to this main street, Franklin Avenue, in, in St. Louis, and a few blocks away from there where they lived. And we they held down. I was wondering, well, how are we going to get there? So 
they started hitchhiking. I, my mother told me, don't get in the car with any strangers. <laughs> so, so I got piled in the car with this very nice man who uh, who was on his way home from work, and he dropped us off. Um, at this, It was like a Masonic temple where they had these dances. And when I, we got there, I didn't realize that they didn't have any money. They started panhandling uh, for the 25-cent fare to get in. And I had to do what they were doing. I couldn't pull my money out of my shoe. I had hidden it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or in my bra, one or the other. I can't remember which. Um, but, so what happened is that, that they got their they panhandled got their money quickly. They said, well, where, how much do you have? I said, I don't have any. They said, you can't do anything right. <laughs> so I felt so totally inadequate. <laughs> I just started, started asking friends um, to give me some money. I got a few pennies from somebody, and one guy, gave, a kid boy, gave me a nickel. Finally, I got my 25 cents. And we went inside, and I didn't realize. They set me up. They had... They, oh, first they gave me an identity. They told me that you have to tell people that you're from Arkansas and you just got here and you live with your grandmother and you can't, you don't have a telephone and you can't have, or your grandmother won't let you talk on the phone, so you can't give them your phone number. And I said, okay. Then they had this, we were all sitting around along the wall and then they had a little boy who was like half as tall as I was. I was five, six. And he came over to ask me to dance, and I, I didn't really want to. I was very, very embarrassed by the whole thing. And he, they kept pushed me out on the floor, and he had his little arms around my waist. His head was about <laughs> just around my bust line, and he was trying to pull up close to me and grind. And they cracked up. They were laughing. They had told him to do this to me. I realized that night. You are not one of these kids. You can do your research all you want to, but they have the power over their own lives. <laughs> I, I wrote it up, <laughs> but but it was, I mean they they were. I took, um, I challenged you know the prevailing theories and notion back then that these kids came from disorganized, dysfunctional families. I mean they had a, they were very functional. They didn't have money. Parents were living in poverty. And they were struggling to do the best, very best they could, you know. Mm-hmm. But they certainly had a strong sense of, of self, strong sense of, of positive identity. I mean, they knew who they were. They weren't all downtrodden. I mean, they, they could set me as a doctoral student up for sure. Um, well, so, you know, I, I thought about you and the guidance and the direction that you have taken, how we approach using sociology as a way of examining uh, programs and solutions. And I thought about you today when I read um, a report that Mm -hmm. the teen pregnancy rate in the black community over the last five years has decreased by 51%. I don't know if that happened. I know it has steadily gone down. Well, I I want this audience to know that the work that you did has ad- advanced at the time how we think about women and families in our community, and it really informed the work of people going forward 
so that they're not distorting who we are. Right. You know, one of the things that, that um, I was being taught, I mean, I was, had professors who, professor who was the leading, one of the leading experts um, on the disorganization and the pathology of the black family. And here I was, a lowly graduate student who's bringing all this data back to my professor when I was got to interview people, and I'd bring it back, and he was writing it up. And I didn't believe in that, but, you know, how do you challenge a professor and tell him he's wrong, you know? Uh-huh, and I, uh-huh. I was so determined that if I got the chance when I finished and got my degree, I would write what, I would analyze this data and write what I wanted to write, and that's what exactly what I did. Uh-huh. Is that how you came with the death of white sociology? No, it was the Tomorrow's Tomorrow, the Black Woman, my dis- based on my dissertation. That was my first book. Uh-huh. And I wrote, wrote um, in the beginning of that book, um, in the introduction, I, I remember starting out by saying, I don't know what, whether this book had its beginnings um, with me when I began studying graduate school or if it had its beginnings when I was, uh, I was just in my study and came and got a copy of it, um, or whether it was, just a second, I said, here's the sentence, it is very difficult to determine whether this book had its beginnings when I was growing up in rural Mississippi and experiencing all the tensions, conflicts, joys, sorrows, warmth, compassion, and the cruelty that was associated with becoming a black woman, or whether it originated with my graduate school career when I became engaged in research for doctoral dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I went on to say that I, became, uh, I am sure that the 20 years I spent being socialized by my family in the broader black community prior to entering grad school shaped my perception of life, defined my emotive responses to the world, and enhanced my ability to survive in a society that has not made survival of blacks easy. Mm-hmm. That was how I framed the book. Um, and instead of taking that data and and just saying that these girls are in fe- mostly female-headed households and their mothers are poor and they're uneducated and they're migrants from the South, da-da-da-da, I turned it on its head and said, and in fact, it's a, a pathological society that keeps people oppressed like this. Indeed it is. Yeah, and, that and not- you were a pioneer in taking those broad steps forward with that ideology. But I didn't have any idea that that was what I was doing at the time. I mean, because you have to re- I always say that we we were very young back when we were doing, we were in the movement, we were doing things. And you have to keep thinking of of people in their natural, no matter how, we were ordinary, ordinary young people who were taking uh, extraordinary uh, efforts to mm-hmm. bring about change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, mean, I was you know, an ordinary yeah. grad student who just happened to have had the opportunity to have grown up in in a society that taught me that we were highly functional people, that we were strong, tough-minded people. I mean, my mother and her family, you know, for generations had passed down to us that you're as good as anyone, you're as good as anybody. And 
when white you talk to white people, look at them dead in the eye and don't blink. And stand up for what you believe. Now my mother didn't know that I was going to stand up and go to jail, but <laughs> never said anything about it because that's what she had said: stand up for what you believe in. She always also said, you know, your beliefs aren't very important if you can't defend them. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, my mother. My mother had a discussion with me about what I was doing here in Boston um, when I was a college student. I was oh, okay. always, I mean, m- my dad had to come and arrange for a bail for me, and um, I was uh, a summer school student at Palmer Institute, and we ran away trying to join up with SNCC, and we were too young, and they <laughs> caught us, and in in DC and sent us back to school. <laughs> we had actually wow. gone a wall. Um, wow. And but my mother said to me, uh, in one of those events where I was involved, I had gotten arrested at Boston University, and she was having a, a discussion with me over the phone. And she said, "You're not a student at Boston University. Why were you even in the building?" And I said, <laughs> well, you know, there's so few black students in Boston, we all have to band together, so we just go from one school to the next. And then I got arrested at Brandeis. And and my mother said to me, she said, you know, you're going to have to decide whether you're going to do hard time or you're going to do good time. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess in the world where – I live, um, and the things, the thoughts that that move me, I'm going to have to do hard time. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. said, well, you've got to be willing to pay the consequences, but right. we can't be bailing you out of jail every time you decide you're going to do your hard time. Yeah. So I, I do think that the lives of activists evolve around what you think has to be done. It is compelling. Right. And you gotta, you, you just got to do it. I, I, my sister is a perfect example of that. Now, Dory um, dropped out of college three times. And I remember one time she said, Joyce, I can't study while my people are suffering. And I was just trying to figure, well, I'm not getting, you know, doing the best work I can by far because I'm trying to do both. Mm-hmm. But, but I could I could stay in school. She said she couldn't because her people were suffering and she had to be out there. And that was it comes as close to a calling. And, and it's only been in recent years yes. that I understood that that was a calling. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and you and you have to make hard choices when you when you stand your ground on principles that you believe in, just as you've said. Right. You know. And, you know. As I write this book now about the coming of age during that era, it's. I keep trying to think not as how I, at three score and ten, understand life now, but how did I understand it at age 17, 18, 19, mm-hmm. 20? You know, mm-hmm. and how even in graduate school, when I finished at 24, how how did I think then as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, I, I'm not one who will say that, well, I understood what I was doing, I didn't really. I mean, I may have under, had some elementary understanding of it, but I didn't have. I didn't have insight. I didn't have the 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 wisdom 
the understanding that comes through wisdom that comes through years and years of rolling these things over in your head and 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 thinking about them in context mm-hmm. we were we were very responsible uh young people we were people say you were so brave i don't think we thought of ourselves as brave we just thought of ourselves as we and we were careful too. We didn't jump out there and try. I mean, and incite people to hurt us at all. You did everything mm-hmm. you could to try to be as safe as you could within a very dangerous situation. Yeah, but that's that's right. And you worked in a dangerous era. Oh, people have to understand how dangerous it was to do the work that you did as a as a young as a young person. Yeah, and we were chased by. On those dark, lonely roads, you know, this is back when they had two-lane highways. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I always said, the people in SNCC had different skills. And the best skill, one of the most important skills that they could have was being a good driver. I remember Stokely Carmichael, Cleve Sellers, Avenue Donaldson. Those guys could drive some cars. On the dirt roads, yeah. on the back yeah, roads. in and out of, you know, in and I out tell of dangerous you, it wasn't no 95. No, 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 no. In and out of dangerous situations, I mean, the ability to get you out of danger. And they used to tell us to sit in the back seat. Girls, you know, you sit in the back seat. Now, when I hear, this brings up another real sore issue for me. When I hear people talking, white feminists now saying that they didn't like to type and they were told they had to stay in the office and type, they wanted to go out to organize. I did not want anybody in my uh, those women out in the neighborhoods organizing when the cops were going to see them out there and come down on all them and all of us. Mm-hmm. It had to do. I mean, you had different skills, but <clears throat> but <laughs> when a guy asked me to sit in the back seat because we were going in through a dangerous part of a town or whatever, I was so glad to get back there. I didn't know what to do because they were willing. They were risking their lives for us. That's- up front. Yeah, that's right. That's right. My roommate, you know, my roommate was, was one point, and then oh, done. But my roommate was a, a white girl from Virginia, Joan Trumpower Mulholland. She was a freedom rider, a wonderful, yes, yes. brave girl. Now, Joan, I used to carry a black scar- silk scarf in my purse or in my pocket so that on those times I was, Joan was in the car with us. Especially at night, when we were on our way back to campus, uh, dark, long, miles and miles of stretches of road without street lights. I used to make her put that scarf on, and most of the time she had to ride on the floor. And mm-hmm. um, there was no question about it. She couldn't argue about it. I'm going to sit up. I said, no, you're not. You're gonna get, not going to get me killed. And that was uh-huh. the context. You know, all of us weren't to survive. And we didn't want her killed, but we certainly didn't want to be killed either. Mm-hmm. And and as you were rolling through the dark dirt roads of the Deep South, organizing our people, empowering them to find their liberty and to enjoy democracy, did you ever think that you would become the president of Howard University for a year? No way. I didn't even think of me. Again, we didn't think about those things. <laughs> as young uh-huh. people, you thought about maybe next year, but not not 
I mean, I, I, first I was going to be a social worker. When I was a little kid, I wanted to go to college to learn how to help people. That's what I, what I called it. And eventually someone, uh, uh, one of my mentors gave me a, na- a name for it. It's called social work. And then uh-huh. in college, my last year of college, I decided I wanted, I was more interested in understanding the causes instead of, um, so I wanted to get, study sociology and went uh, uh-huh. first, you know, I went to grad school direct from college. I, I left immediately. And uh-huh. I always said I was in co- school from age three and a half to 24, and that was it. I was done. I don't want mm-hmm. to study anything anymore. Um, you know, it's it really interesting. I have to tell you this this really uh, quirky kind of uh, story. Um, on the morning that it was announced that you would become the interim president of Howard University, mm. uh, my granddaughter was born. Really? And my mother called to find out how the baby was doing, and I picked up the phone and I said, her name is Imani, and um, did you hear about the woman, uh, Dr. Ladner, down in D.C. has been named the president of Howard? Oh my God. <laughs> Your mother was not even sincere about this. She was thinking about her first grandbaby. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. That's uh, Joyce, we only have uh, uh, a short time left. And we've got someone who would like to talk with you, um, so we'll go to our phones. But uh, okay. I, I'm telling you, you've been on my radar a long time. Well, um, I even went back to West Palm Beach, and I wanted some of the, you know, the overalls that you had on. Oh yeah, Jones, I wanted uh, overalls. I wanted those overalls. <laughs> nine seven nine, you're on the air with Dr. Joyce, a Ladner witness from the bridge. Uh, yes, Dr. Ladner, this is uh, Tommy Curry. Oh, hi, Tommy, how are you? My nice friend. to Good. see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am, long-time fan. You know, read, read practically everything you wrote. Um, oh, that's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, I want to ask you, you were talking about your passion with social work, with brush and sociology. You know, I'm doing some work writing on, you know, on your work and, you know, tomorrow's tomorrow. What inspired mm-hmm. you to talk about uh, young black girls specifically, and, and from the frame that you did from black family studies, what what generated that? What 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 formed kind of your intellectual and political heritage? You know, it, it may be disappointing to know this, but it wasn't political, uh, uh, intellectual at all. It was very personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, my advisor Lee Rainwater, who directed the um, Prudigo Housing Project study that I, I was a research assistant on, so I paid was paid to go to graduate school. He told us that we could study anything we wanted to. And I was just thinking, he said, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, maybe women, you know, because I'm a woman. And that's exactly what I said. (laughs) (laughs) There was nothing high-minded about it at all. (laughs) But, you know, underneath it all, there must have been some subliminal interest or desire on my part to understand women and therefore myself better. That's what I'd say now as an informed person. But but at 20 years old, you asked me, what do you want to study? And the, I, the thing was wide open. I could study anything. One of my one of my friends, Ethel Sawyer, was studying uh, gay women, you know, lesbians. Mm-hmm. Um, Boone Hammond, who died, was studying. Was my counterpart. He'd already begun. Uh, he was a couple, two, three years ahead of me. But he did the male counterpart to 
work I did on on girls. And my roommate, um, Gwen McGee, who became a textile artist, uh, worked with Jules Henry, the anthropologist, and studied the schools. So I just said, women, girls. And that was it. But it was all a matter of evolution. It evolved over time. The title of the book is... um Tomorrow's Tomorrow, The Black Woman, A Study of Poor Black Adolescent Girls from St. Louis, and it was published first in 1971. How, how much, Dr. Kari, can she be a pioneer? How much can she be, say again? How much more could she be a pioneer? Oh, it's unquestionable. Unquestionable. Un- unquestionable. Yeah. Absolutely. Go on, I'm sorry. George, you have to understand how much your work, here's Dr. Curry, who's continuing to examine the work that you did in 1971. When Tommy Curry first contacted me on Facebook and uh, told me his interest, I was so so pleasantly surprised. I'm always surprised when people find uh, are interested in the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess it's because I, I don't take it for granted. I mean, and especially the book became a classic, but after... Forty odd years, you know, it's 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 uh, it's nice to to know that that it still resonates and that people find something in it to to look further at. Uh, but I don't want to overemphasize the fact that when you're young, you don't have a lot of self awareness. Mm-hmm. That evolves over time, and I started out certainly not with the wisdom I have now by any means, but. You have to be courageous enough to keep searching and searching and searching and curious. You, if if I, I tell students, if there's one quality I like in you among, more than any other, it is curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that is to keep keep exploring and to keep trying to, you, you keep raising questions with yourself that you want to answer, so you keep digging and digging and digging. Uh, had I not had curiosity, I would have been just another tenured professor uh, toiling in obscurity somewhere in some place. <laughs> No, seriously, but, you know. And Curry, I hope that you are looking at the issue of how important that work is because it is informed by the time. It is Absolutely. informed by a culture that has diminished in our society and a culture where black adolescent girls were essentially at the time invisible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think the other thing that I encourage students uh, to do, and that is to be curious, but also to be courageous. And courage is not the absence of of fear, but the ability to act in in spite of it, you know, Mm -hmm. to prevail in spite of it, but to keep plodding along, you know. And it's not necessarily giant steps. It's oftentimes slow steps, you know, one after another. But you got to stand up for what you believe, and sometimes those beliefs may not be the most informed, but if they hit you in your gut right, yes, that's what I call authenticity. Uh, you you got to be, you got to, your work's got to be authentic. I mean, you got to mm-hmm. feel, it's got to resonate with you as, 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 as the truth, truth. And I know there are various definitions of truth, but you know, you just gotta feel like this is right, you know, and I gotta keep mm-hmm. digging. I'm on the, in the going in the right direction. Mhm, mhm. 
you're you're absolutely right, Dr. Kerr. We look forward uh, to your work and in examining you, and incorporating and uh, the work of Dr. Ladner because it is important to keep that discourse, that dialogue, that that investigation um, in front of us. Well, I want to you know commend. Professor Curry, Tommy. Yes, ma'am. To, to, uh, Tommy J. <laughs> Tommy J, right, right. What does the J stand for? Uh, Jermaine. Oh, Tommy Jermaine. Okay. I want to commend you on being interested in women and feminism, um, or womanism, you know, black women's studies. Um, Thank you. As a man, number one, and um, you're going up against the tide so much because. <laughs> yeah, um, you see that on Facebook too, huh? Yeah, that they, they, the women who are in the established uh, woman, uh, more femi- black black feminist studies, um, don't like the work you're doing, but you got to keep doing it, you know. Yes, ma'am. That's I right. appreciate that. You've yeah. got to bring clarity to. Yeah, you got to break out of the pack too. That's well, you know, right. our, our, our foremothers. You know, that's one of the reasons I, I like reading your work, uh, LaFrance's work. Uh, you know, even Staples and, and Harris, you know, both of them's work is that I think that it establishes a very clear principle about what our people were about, men and women, you know. Right. And, and that's one of the things, you know, even when I read the Death of White Sociology that you edited, it's very clear that you all working from different paradigms that don't seek to reproduce um, the eras of Eurocentric thinking. And right. I th- yeah. I'll tell you how that title came into existence. I was, um, I had put together this collection of essays and I didn't have a title, and um, the um, Charles Harris, who was an editor at Random House, asked me, the black guy, Charles, asked me, what is your title going to be? I said, I don't know, I'm thinking about an introduction to an introduction of black sociology. <laughs> and he said, no, you got to have something catching, like, what about something like, the death of white sociology. And I said, well, okay, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my question earlier. That that's that's a, that's a that's a great summary of of how it came to be because yeah. um, people like me, we have thrived. I mean, I was in the corporate world, but there there was an undergird to help me understand myself and where I was in all that craziness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it helped me to fight back the mass media conception of who I was. Right, and I'm sure you had a tough time in the media trying to remain clear-headed and present the truth as you knew it, you know? Absolutely. Dr. Curry, thank you so very much for yes, your Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having and me. Your, and your, and <laughs> so glad to have you with us on Saturday nights. Yes, you keep you keep stringing those 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 beautiful beautiful um, pieces that you're stringing, and yeah, Prince, Prince is gonna keep coming for you. <laughs> Thank you so very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, that was Dr. Tommy J. Curry and our Common Ground Voice. He has been with us a number of times. Dr. Joyce Ladner truly looking at the world from the bridge that you have both built and maintained has been such an absolute pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed it very much. 
And I, I am so privileged. We are at our common ground, so privileged to have had us with, have, have had you with us, and we hope that we can have you come back to talk about just your, your work on um, black adolescent um, uh, girls, uh, because it's something that's on our agenda as part of our theme this year of Black America State of Emergency. Okay, and we haven't, seen, we haven't seen very much about uh, how we reconstruct, reconstitute our communities around uh, black girls. Well, I think it's an important study, uh, um, topic that we need to engage in serious dialogue about, and we need to find support systems for young girls. Um, I know a lot of people are working in that area, but there can never be too many in Absolutely. So thank you so very much for being with us. You are truly an authentic witness from the bridge. Well, thank you so much for having me. Good night. Good night. I have so much enjoyed uh, that discussion with uh, Dr. Joyce Ladner, and we certainly hope that she'll be coming back at Our Common Ground now that she is an Our Common Ground voice and a witness from the bridge. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap this up. invite you to join Peter E. Matthews on Soul Emergence, Tuesday nights, 9 p.m., Soul Emergence at TruthWorks Network. Where reconciliation is the tool of revolution. Soul Emergence with Peter E. Matthews, only on TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative. From the Truth Works Network studio at Blog Talk Radio and Our Common Ground Media Production. The Black Voice Collaborative. The Alpha Show Alpha, serving his politics with hot grips. Soul Emergence with Peter E. Matthews, reconciling for revolution. Special broadcast series Working While Black, Black Women in the Prison. And power you. The truth must be spoken more than once. Only on TruthWorks Network. You can find TruthWorks Network on Facebook. Like us and learn more about us. Walk in. 
and we thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground with our witness from the bridge, Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. What a magnificent, outstanding example of black womanhood she is. We thank Dr. Tommy Curry for his call, and we thank you for being with us in our chat room. Uh, loads of people uh, have joined us tonight uh, to, to gather together to listen to the wisdom, the history. I mean, when you think about history, we always think it in the context of people who were. Joyce Ladner is a person who is. She's working on her um, memoir, Stand Up Straight, coming of age during the Civil Rights Movement. Don't forget, if you have not, you should very much put into your um, library the books of Joyce A. Ladner. Let me give you that list once again so you won't be lacking in terms of what you should have read. The Death of White Sociology, Essays on Race and Culture. It was published by Black Classic Press. Launching Our Black Children for Success, a guide for parents of kids from 3 to 18. Tomorrow's Tomorrow, The Black Woman. And we're hoping that we will have her back to talk about Tomorrow's Tomorrow. Uh, the Times That Bind, Timeless Values for African American Families, Mixed Families Adopting Across Racial Boundaries, and The New Urban Leader. Those are all books we recommend for your library. Thank you so very much for being with us. We'll be right back here on next Saturday night at 10 p.m., Transforming Truth to Power, One Broadcast at a Time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight with our witness from the bridge, Dr. Joyce Adeladner to remind us that we all must participate and be part of lifting up our people and that we have a living presence of history that we can learn from. She came to change a nation and lift up a people. Thank you, Dr. Joyce Elaine. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, here at Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. And he knew he could not stop Always living With the threat of death ahead Folks, you'd better Stop and think Cause we're headed for the bridge He was for equality 
Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.